Folks, it is a delight to be at College uh, Park Church. We've heard so much about you in years past, and working with Nate has been a privilege for Second Presbyterian Church. And as a former board member of World Relief, I can also thank you on their behalf uh, for your partnership in Cambodia. Cambodia is one of the poorest countries in the world. And if you've been there, you know that through the Khmer Rouge and other uh, very difficult moments in their history, Pol Pot regime, uh, the whole leadership group was devastated. And just about 20 years ago, you could almost count on your hand the number of Christians that were remaining. And now I'm glad to report there are thousands of Christians as you and others are partnering to lead people to Christ there. And it's absolutely thrilling. Uh, one time I was there with our team and uh, teaching for a week. And by the way, it was flood season. We thought we were there a little early, but we missed uh, the floods came early. And I preached uh, in barefoot because you didn't want your shoes to get soaked. <laughs> so roll up your pants legs and then preach barefoot just to walk, you know, after you walk through the floods. But when we were there, we had the privilege of meeting one of the women who had come to know Christ in your ministry there. And she was a, an older woman, and she was blind. And the reason she was blind, she had a disease that her uh, unfaithful husband had given to her through his unfaithfulness that caused her to go blind. And then her house had burned. Her husband had abandoned her. Her son, her only child, was ashamed of her because she had this disease. She was completely bereft. She was orphaned. She was widowed. She was uh, abandoned. And she couldn't see. That's a formula for death. And she was ready to take her own life because she knew there was no hope for her. And then two other women that you led to Jesus Christ through your missionaries there led her to Christ. And there she's sitting before me and she said, Pastor, I can't see you, but I I can hear you. And let me tell you this. I'd rather be alone and blind, making less than a dollar a day at my work and know my Savior Jesus Christ than to have my eyes and not know Him and be in total darkness. That's what's happening through your ministry in Cambodia. And of course, it's a great honor to be there and to see the work of the Lord. And it's a great honor to be your friends, even though I don't know you. I feel like I do. You've given such a warm reception to all your missionaries and to me. We feel so warmly received here. And we thank you for your care about the world. Now, when we look at the world, we get really concerned. Of course, we have 33 million people with AIDS, 15 million orphans. And if you travel sub-Saharan Africa, you just see orphans everywhere. We have 42 military conflicts going on in the world right now, producing 34 million refugees. We have 30 million people captured in the sex slave traffic. 30 million people. More slaves than ever we've had in the history of our world through that trade. It's vicious. It's wicked. It's dark. And it calls forth in us the deepest desire to do something about it. And then when we look at where this church actually specializes in your missions program, reaching the unreached people, my stars, you see 1.8 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, not even in a cuss word. They have no idea who he is. And they have no human means of getting to know him unless someone goes from a culture like this one to a culture like theirs. In other words, they are in need of cross-cultural missionaries so that there will be the presence of Christ in this church there that they might hear the gospel. Now, that's the greatest need of all. And hundreds of thousands of people are dying every week 
without ever having heard the name of Christ. And when we see something like that, we see our world in need, we want to do something about it. And it sort of reminds me of my son. Those of you who are college age or older, of course, you'll remember probably exactly where you were on September uh, the 11th, 2001. I remember where I was. I was between my first set of tennis and the next one that was supposed to happen and the next one never happened because I looked up on the television screen as we were wiping ourselves off and I saw the Trade Center coming down. And I knew that I was to get back where I was and lead our people in prayer. We had the largest prayer meeting probably in the history of our church on that day. And all of us knew then something traumatic and tragic had happened to us and we needed to do something about it. My second son, his name is Ben, he had just graduated from college and unbeknownst to his mother and his father, he just headed right for the Marine Recruiting Center and signed up and he was a a Marine officer flying helicopters in Iraq and Afghanistan for eight or nine years before he entered law school. He knew that he needed to do something. And here's why. The integrity and the security and the dignity of a country he loved was under attack. And he couldn't stand for it. And he wanted to do something about it. And I'm proud of him. He did do something about it. But you know what? Our kingdom is not the kingdom of America, is it? Now, we are citizens of America, if you're an American citizen here. And we care a lot about it. And I won't take a backseat to anybody on their patriotism. However, ultimately and eternally, we're connected to another kingdom, aren't we? We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And when that kingdom is attacked, when that kingdom is vitiated, when that kingdom is diminished, then everything within us rises up. And we say, I want to do something. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what's happening around the world. That through the disobedience of nation after nation, including our own, we see the imposition of poverty and darkness and despair from one nation to another. Two-thirds of the world is in poverty, and one-third of the world is in what we call extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. And these are are people who live on a planet that God made and He claims for His own. And His dignity and His rule is being diminished. And that causes something within us to rise up, doesn't it? And we've been given ways in which we can do something. Certainly, people in churches like yours or mine have money. And we have more money than anyone else in the world. This is the richest nation in the history of the world. If you make $50,000, you are in the top 1% of income makers in the world. You don't think of yourself as being wealthy. You're just glad you can pay your bills on time. But the rest of the world looks at you, and they know that you're wealthy. And they have a right to expect a response from us with our wealth. And it's tragic that only uh, in in America the average gift to any charity whatsoever is 2.8% of one's income. If you take the median gift of Americans, it's 0.67%. We are not particularly generous, frankly. And then when you take the gifts that come into the church... The North American church, only 2% of it goes outside the borders of our own country. 2% in the richest nation in the world. There's obviously something we need to do. And we still need North American missionaries, short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And I'm so grateful for these men and women. I know you are too, I could tell, for the leadership and the service that they're giving us going cross-culturally. 
We all want to do something. There's something that we can do. What we want to do this morning is look at the text of Psalm 2, and particularly we're going to look at Psalm 2, verse 8, because here we see what God especially wants all of us to do. This is not spiritual ease. It's not just church language. It's not just liturgy hocus-pocus. This is what God wants us to do. And the reason we know this is if you look at Psalm 2, you'll see a certain outline that shows us uh, that the times were difficult. Now, let's look at Psalm 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up. And you'll notice at the beginning of Psalm 2, it doesn't tell us who the author is. Now, uh, some of the Psalms are that way. But especially in what we call Book 1 of the Psalms, that would be Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, almost all of those are authored by David. So you would be suspicious anyway that David wrote Psalm 2. But when you look in Acts chapter 4, the apostles actually tell us who wrote it. It was David. David wrote it. And he wrote it, you'll see, of course, about himself and about all the kings in his dynasty. Because, you know, when David was appointed king, he was promised by God, 2 Samuel 7, 14, that there would be not only a kingship under David personally, but there would be a whole line of David. There would be this, this incredible dynasty of David that would go through the ages. And then, of course, you know the one who summarizes it all, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, who takes the, the, the scepter, takes the crown, and he rules as David's greater son now and forever. And so the psalm ultimately, of course, speaks about him. But David then seems to be the author, and you'll notice in the psalm, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, that David is the narrator, and he's speaking about his world. And what does he say about his world? He says that people are raging against the kingdom of God. God has established his kingdom. But look at the other kings. All they're doing is competing with God's kingdom. They're trying to bring it down. And you'll notice in the text that not only do they disobey the law of God, no, they want to destroy the law of God. Look, look in verse 3. He says, he quotes them as saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. This is what the nations are saying. And I see it in instance after instance in our own country and the nations of this world how we look at the law of God and the principles for right living and building a good society and we do the opposite and we teach others to do the same. Cast off their bonds from us. And this is exactly what David was dealing with. He had a time much like our own. Now notice, when you turn to verses 4 through 6 then, you see now that David is going to speak about the one who's in the heavens, God the Father. And he says, the one who is enthroned in the heavens laughs. It's the only place in the Scriptures where you'll see that God laughs. Now he dances and sings, doesn't he, in Zephaniah? But here he laughs. And we'll see the meaning of that. The reason is, He has established, David says, his king on Zion. And he goes on to tell that king what to do. And then you'll see that this king is told that he shall be given a rod of iron that shall smash the nations. So God is assuring his king that even though the nations are are rising up and are trying to throw off the bonds of the law of God, and are trying to avoid the kingship of David, David is being told, no, the Lord in heaven is going to give you the rod of iron to rule the nations. 
And then you see in verses 10 through 12, lastly, the narrator then returns. And this would be David. And David then pleads with the nations. Be wise, O kings of the earth. Come and kiss the son. Bow at his feet. Because he's a wrathful, he's a wrathful God. And you want to bow to his king and submit to him. Because all those who take refuge under this kingship, they're going to be blessed. And so you can see a wonderful combination of the holiness, justice, and sovereignty of God with the tender kindness and affection of God for all the peoples of the world giving them warning. That's what this psalm shows us. Now, this morning, we're looking particularly at verse 8. And let's just read it together. In fact, would you read it with me? Verse 8, if you have a Bible in front of you. Hear the word of God. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Let us pray. Father, we do ask of you because you hold all things in your hands. And we pray that as we now read your word and study it, that you by your spirit would enable us to apply it to our hearts so that we're transformed in your presence and so that we who are the kings and queens of the earth will come and submit ourselves to you. We will come and kiss the son, the king, and that we will receive the blessings, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms which devolve upon us simply because we take refuge in you. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Folks, in the moments we have, I want us to make three observations, if we could, from this one verse. And the first observation comes from from the first three words, ask of me. And here's what we learn. That God commands us to pray for his mission. God commands us to pray for his mission. If you're a red-blooded American like I am, trained in the systems of thought and business and activities I've been trained, you think immediately about getting your hands on the steering wheel and driving this bus and getting it going in the right direction. And we all think about what kind of resources can I bring to the table? I have some money. I have some training. I have a lot of friends. And I have the opportunities to serve and let's go take care of this broken world. That's the way a typical American, especially in the professional communities, thinks. Here's how we think. Find a problem, come up with a solution, develop a strategy, hire a person, give them a job description, fund them, put a feedback loop in, evaluate them, train or terminate and get the next leader. That's how we do it when we're getting ready to do something, right? It's very tempting for us to want to grab the steering wheel and say, let's get this world missions thing done. And when we do that, we've not yet begun to consider the complexities of this task. I was reading not too long ago a book called End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. Some of you will know the name, S-A-C-H-S. He taught at Harvard, and then he was for a long time teacher in in this realm at Columbia University, and he's traveled so many of the countries of the world, and every chapter in his book 
is actually a testimony about his consultation with the government in that particular country. And every country had a different problem, which gave him the outline for his whole survey of how to end poverty in the world. And you get to the end of it, and he makes this grand statement. If every developed nation would give 2% of their GDP for the relief, uh, relief of poverty, we can solve this thing. Well, it's kind of like late 19th century, early 20th century liberal optimism. You kind of love to hear it because it makes it sound like, you know, we can do something about this. But then, of course, the real realist in me knows Dr. Sachs, with all of his expertise and all of his brilliance, has not really begun to consider the depth of the human problem. That we are poor spiritually, pitiable, blind, naked, and in deep need. And if we don't address that need, you can have all the governmental structures and all the money you want, and we're not going to solve it. And that's the reason that the gospel mission that puts word and deed together, bathed by prayer, is the answer. And you'll notice here what the father tells his kingly son to do. Ask of me. Ask of me. And here's why you ask. Because you can't do it yourself. And all of your friends can't do it. And all the churches in the world can't do it. Ask of me, he says. You must learn to pray, ladies and gentlemen. And we know that this is ultimately talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here's how you know it. First of all, if you look in the text, in verse 2, these nations are taking counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. In Hebrew, that's Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. From which we get the Greek word Christos, Christ. So they are raging against Christ. What do you do about that? Ask of me, says the Father. Now take your Bibles. Let's go to the New Testament for a moment. And if you'll turn to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Let's just look at it. Just a couple of places where we're given wonderful invitations to pray. You'll see in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he says, here's the reason. He says, understand who's asking. And understand who's listening. The one who asking is asking is a child. And the one who's listening happens to be your personal father. Let's look at his reasoning here. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Ladies and gentlemen, ask him. He's waiting to pour out the richest of blessings upon his children. And the greatest blessings will come when you ask and pray and seek and you will find. Turn on over to 1 John. If you can't find it, it's right before 2 John. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It really is right before 2 John. And in 1 John chapter 5, you will find that John is writing to believers like ourselves. And in verse 13, you see why he's writing. He's writing so that we may know who we are. So often I find believers who are genuinely converted and they really doubt the love of God and with their doubts of their assurance of salvation in Christ, their effectiveness is vitiated. 
Our assurance of salvation is important to us. And that's the reason that John wrote to them. And then he tells them something else about this special relationship they've got. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. 1 John 5, 14. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Ladies and gentlemen, look at that invitation. This invitation doesn't go to the entire world. It goes to people who are his children. Now, I know what it's like to have children. I have five of them. And I have four grandchildren and two in the oven. And I'm leaving you this afternoon hoping I time it just perfectly to arrive, be there for the arrival of number five in Virginia. My Marine son is having his first child. So I want to be there when his son arrives. Hopefully tomorrow. (laughs) So far, so good. I find out this morning. Oh, how I love my children. When my little granddaughters come up to me and say, Papa, oh, the world turns. Yes. What shall it be? Ask of me. And I will give you up to half my kingdom. Oh. The heart of Papa for his little ones. They're going to ruin me. I love them so much. And yet I look in the Scriptures and I see, oh, God's love for us. Oh, it's just infinitely beyond anything that I can feel or experience with my children or my grandchildren. He just loves us. He cherishes us. And he pleads with us. Would you ask me? Would you just ask me? You say, why does he want us to ask? I mean, he can give us anything he wants to. Why does he want us to ask? I don't know. That's three words every preacher needs to learn and memorize. I don't know. (laughs) However, I do know this, that his power is displayed in our weakness. And when you're on your face and you have nowhere else to go, and you can't cure your cancer and you can't convert your child and you can't even pay the bills and you certainly can't lead the world to Christ. And you say, God, please. Oh, how he loves for us to come in our weakness when we know how much we need him. And do you see how that relationship is built when you just cast yourself upon his mercy and you know you have nowhere else to go? He just says, ask him. Look, he's saying this to his own son. He's saying this to the Messiah. He's saying it to Jesus Christ. Think of it. Jesus Christ is on the cross suffering for us. And he can hear his father say, just ask me, son. Just ask me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just ask me, my son. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, this is what Christians do. And the reason we do it is because our Savior does it. There is what we call the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. A covenant even within the councils of the Trinity where the Father makes His promises to the Son and the Son pledges Himself to the Father. And when you and I come into Christ, we come into the beloved community of the Trinity Himself. And we share in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Do you see how much the Father loves the Son? He said it, you know, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here, even with his own beloved son, he says, son, ask of me. 
And so I ask of you to ask of him. And when Nate stands before us as one of the pastors of this church leading the global mission of this church, and he says to us, we need Barnabas partners. He says that because he and the missionaries believe that above all they need prayers from these people. He has given us an invitation and some of you can arrange that in your schedules and I plead with you to do it. That, believe me, is more important than your money. And I say that as one who believes in money and the good use of it and I raise it all the time for missions causes. But I'm saying to you now that your prayers are more important than your financial gifts. And when you gather tonight for Fresh Encounter, which I understand you do every month, but tonight it's on the mission of the world, would you please come, not because Nate invited you or because Mark invites you, but would you please come because the God of the universe pleads with you to ask of me. And ask of me as individuals. Ask of me as a congregation. Ask of me as a family. And let me just ask those of you who are still leading families, who have little ones in your house or people under your authority in your home, are you gathering to pray as a family? Is this part of your regimen that you study the Word together for a few moments each day and you look to the Lord in prayer? If you don't, would you please, would you please go home and resolve with your family, look, let's start this. Let's have family worship together. And then when you gather in worship... You know, the Wilson family, we used to just, with our five kids, hand out the bucket, had all the missionary cards in it. And every child chooses one, just picks one out of the bucket, and that's who you pray for tonight. You don't need to have a bucket, you've got a book. You're sophisticated. So you take your little church book, and you turn the pages, and you let your children choose which missionary tonight you're going to pray for. Or if you're in a Barnabas group, you can pray for that one at least once a week. And you take it as a fam- part of your family religion. And then your children learn what you really care about. Because let me tell you something. What you really care about is what is in your prayers. That's what you care about. And your children should hear you pray for the nations. Best you can do it. You say, I don't know how. You know what one woman told me? When my mother was dying, she taught me to pray. She said, I didn't know the Lord yet, but my mother just told me. It. She said, sweetie... You need to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you come to know Him, you want to talk to Him. And she said, here's how you pray. Just talk to Him. Just talk to Him. And you can hear enough this very weekend and know the burdens of the world. Would you just talk to Him about it? And he says, ask of me. And you get your family together and you ask the Lord with your family for the world. So you've got yourself, you've got the church, and you've got your family. As far as you're concerned personally, some of you may want to do as I do with Operation World. There's a wonderful manual called Operation World, the best description of the prayer needs in every country of the world. Get it, $19.95, paperback, I think. Get that book. You can also have emailed to you every day one country to pray for. Yesterday, it was Saudi Arabia. Let me tell you, 0.3% of Saudi Arabia is evangelical Christians, 0.3%. Talk about darkness. We've got to pray. He says, ask of me. Now, that's the first thing we want to observe. Those first three words are extremely important. Now, let's look at the next few words. He says, ask of me, and I will. And I will. What do we learn there? Well, we learn that God not only commands us to pray for his mission, but God answers our prayers. He says, and I will. 
Now, it is the tradition of great kings, and you'll see this even in the Scriptures. Great kings will make it a point to say to their favored subjects, ask whatever you will, and I'll give it to you. And they can say that because they're big and wealthy and powerful. So just ask what you will. You know, when Queen Esther was before the king, he said, he was charmed with her, of course. She was beautiful. He said, whatever you want up to half my kingdom. It was to his glory that he could say that to Esther, whatever she wants. And your king is saying it to you. You're his favored subject. And he's saying, ask me, and I will. And we've seen in verses in the New Testament where Jesus and the apostles have taught us, your king has said this to you. You can make entrance into his throne room, and he will. And you see this over and over again in the Scriptures. When we were on the other side of the Red Sea, and we had the sea in front of us, and we had bloodthirsty Egyptians behind us, and we looked to the Lord, what did he do? He said, I will divide the Red Sea for you. And when we were in the wilderness and we didn't have water to drink, and if you've been in the Sinai and had that sandy, hot wind hit you in the face, you know how quickly you go arid. You need water. We had no water. And we prayed to God. And you know what He did? He said, I will bring water out of the rock. And He did. And you know what else? We got hungry in the wilderness. We wanted food. And we asked God because we didn't see any food anywhere. And if you've been in the Sinai, you know there's none to be found. And we prayed to him and he said, I will. And he gave us manna out of heaven. And then we got to get across the Red Sea, rather the, the Jordan River. And we get into the promised land. We're fighting battles against the Amorite kings. And we need a little bit more time to finish the job. And we pray, God, will you give us a little bit more daylight? And he says, I will. And you know what he did? He stopped the sun because his children asked. And you know what? Elijah was facing all of the opposition of his day. 850 priests of a false religion who were ready to take his life because he seemed to be such an absurd little idiot. And he prays to God, God, show them who the Lord is. Bring fire on the sacrifice. And God said, I will. And he brought fire on the sacrifice and consumed the sacrifice, consumed the wood and the stones and licked up the water on it. Our God will. And when Jesus Christ came into this world, He came to heal people. And He prayed to His Father, I will. And they were healed. And He asked for the dead to be raised. Will you raise them up? And God said, I will. And they were raised up. Now let me ask you a question. Is there something God can't do for you? Is there some prayer He can't answer for you? He's saying to His church, Ask of me, and I will. Now some of you have good Presbyterian questions. I know you're not Presbyterians, but you have Presbyterian questions. And you're asking me this question. I can hear you. Spurgeon used to say, I can hear someone asking and I can hear you. You're saying, but I've been asking him. I've been asking for lots of stuff. And I don't see the answers. And I've asked him too, ladies and gentlemen. I asked him for a little child that was dying of cancer. The child died. And I know how you feel. Sometimes it seems as though, you know, the, the heavens are brass. Nothing's getting through. Where is he? You need to read your Bible a little bit more carefully. Because what you'll see in the Bible is that there's a kingdom. And it's growing. It is firmly established. And it will not be moved. And it is moving relentlessly toward a day of consummation. And that's the day when every prayer will be answered. 
And let me ask you, say, well, that's mighty fine. So you're telling me I can pray all I want to, but I may not get it. So you're telling, giving me this pie in the sky stuff like, oh, it'll happen later. Listen, it's only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. If you believe it, let me tell you something. Everything you prayed for, every muttering out of your heart, the Father heard it. And as long as it's in your interest, He'll grant it. And sometimes you foolishly ask for things that are not in your interest. And He will not answer those according to the way you ask. Because He loves you too much. And neither will I for my children or grandchildren. I'm not giving them dessert before dinner starts. (laughs) And they do ask me. And they think I don't love them. Until they're 20. With some time. And then with tears, they tell Allison and me how much they appreciate our parental love for them. They didn't tell us that when they were eight. They told us a lot of other things. <laughs> let me tell you something. You're eight. And you don't know. And let me just ask you a question, my fellow little children. How long would you be willing to wait for God to answer your prayer before you decide that He doesn't answer Him? You give Him five minutes? That's what an eight-year-old will do. How about five years? How about five decades? How about five centuries? Do you know what time is to God? There's time. I believe time, compared to eternity, is zero. God has heard your prayers, and He will. Now, I want you to notice, lastly, we only have a few minutes. We've noticed that God commands us to pray for the mission, that all the nations would bow to the king. And he tells us he will answer. But I want you to notice, thirdly, God's answer is absolutely stupendous. It's breathtaking. It's amazing. I'm slack-jawed at the answer that he gives. He says to his son David, all the nations of the world will belong to you. Every square inch of the globe, the ends of the earth will be in your possession. When Jesus Christ came to this earth and was probated in the wilderness before he began his three-year ministry and faced the devil, do you remember what the devil said to him? He said, Jesus, make a deal with you. I'm pretty good at deals, and you're smart, so I'll make a deal with you. Bow down before me, and I'll give you the nations of the world and all of their glory. And you remember what Jesus said. He quoted from Deuteronomy. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And the devil fled from him. And why did Jesus say that? Because he knew this promise, ladies and gentlemen, that his Father in heaven had said to his Son, You just ask of me, Son, and I will make the nations your inheritance. And Jesus knew that in the love of God we receive it all. And that's the reason we ask. It's not just because we're weak and disabled. It's not just because we're incompetent to accomplish what needs to be done. The reason we ask is because of His greatness. And when He answers, 
and puts all the nations under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're under our feet too. And His name is lifted up and honored and glorified. He has established His Son on Zion and given Him the reign over the nations that we sang about just a few moments ago. And there He is forever, forever praised and honored and glorified. Our gladness promotes His glory. As Spurgeon said about Jesus Christ, he said, The anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. That's the Father's intention for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're in Christ. That's the reason we pray. So please notice in the text the tremendous, compelling vision that is behind the simple mutterings of prayer of the least of His saints. There's this grand and glorious vision of what He's going to do that is beyond our wildest dreams. Beyond our imagination. No mind has conceived what God is going to do in Christ Jesus. Now notice in verses 10 through 12 then, following this prayer, where we are told to plead with God for the nations to submit to Christ. Then the narrator, David himself, and David's greater son, Jesus, now plead with the nations to come and submit to the Lord of the nations. Because we should not, as Derek Kidner says in this text, confuse God's patience with placidity. He is patient, but He is not He is not mild. He is patient, but He is not weak. He is patient, but unlike me, He is not forgetful. It is with intentionality that He's bringing the universe to conclusion. And so David, and later Christ, goes to the world and pleads with them to come and kiss the Son, because otherwise we provoke His wrath, and then gives this blessing to the nations. Blessed are all who take refuge in this sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, may glory be to His name in every way and in every place. And may His glory be shed upon this precious church as we bow our knees and open our hearts and lift up our voices to ask of Him. Lord Jesus Christ, who mediates all of our prayers, interceding for us without ceasing, who makes our prayers effectual before the throne of grace. We praise You and glorify You. For You suffered the worst indignity and the worst of all the human weakness we've ever seen on the cross. And then You were powerfully raised from the dead that You may go to heaven and there intercede for us and there make a place for us and there hear our prayers and make them effective. And we pray now as God's people that You will help us to be the prayers that You've called us to be. We make our prayer, Jesus, in Your powerful name. Amen.